Hi folks, welcome to this week's edition of the Finance Hour. Today I interview Chris Cuff, who is the Chairman of Australian Philanthropic Services. Chris has had a long career in financial services and now combines his business interests with some seriously impactful charitable work in the not-for-profit sector. Before my interview with Chris, I have a chat about what's happening in the world of business, including a fascinating story on making a will by way of unsent text message. And be sure to listen to the very end for my Propel Head of the Week, where I give you a great tip to slash your electricity and gas bill. I welcome your feedback anytime at advice at adaptwealth.com.au or check out our Adapt Facebook page. And for those of you that listen on iTunes, I would love if you would hop in and give us a review. Thanks and enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to the Finance Hour. Whether you're listening live on JR or indeed on our podcast, this is the show where we try and make sense of the world of personal finance and hopefully help you make better financial decisions. My name's Ruben Zelwa. I'm a financial planner and owner at Adapt Wealth Management, and I welcome your SMSs throughout the show today on 047 88 Now, we've got a great show lined up for you today. Uh, in the last couple of uh, shows, we've been interviewing people about their journey uh, in business and their career. Uh, we had uh, Doron Paluch from uh, Burgess Public Legal Recruitment a couple of weeks ago, uh, and he talked about his journey in, uh, in his business life. And today we're going to in- continue on that sort of theme. We're actually going to be interviewing uh, somebody who's had a long career in financial services. Uh, he actually was at the very beginning of the whole managed fund industry. But since then, for the last number of years, he's really had a journey into phil- philanthropy just nearly uh, pronounced that wrong, Uh, and he's really devoted his life and his time uh, to helping others, and it's going to be an interesting discussion to hear about his journey because the world of financial services and banking is not one that you necessarily always align with, uh, with philanthropy or with giving back. So I'm looking forward to hearing from him today. Uh, his name is Chris Cuff, uh, which you might have heard of from his time as the head of Colonial First State, uh, which, as I said, was one of the first, very first managed funds. And uh, he's now the chairman of Australian Philanthropic Services, uh, which help people manage uh, and plan their giving so that they can support the community more effectively. And we'll have him on in just a few minutes. Um, but I just want to have a quick chat about what's been going on in the world of uh, business and finance. And the biggest news really that's occupied the uh, the papers and the television news for the last few weeks is energy prices. The cost of electricity and gas is skyrocketing. And I'm sure that uh, most of the listeners are aware of that. I know uh, with a family of five, uh, it is truly frightening how much our electricity and gas prices have increased. In fact, in July, there were increases of up to 20% 
across the country. 20% was the highest, but on average, it's been about 15%. Now, when we talk about price increases in general, uh, we talk about inflation. So that's how much the average cost of things have gone up. And interestingly, inflation, if you believe the statistics, is running at about just over 2%, which is pretty low. So you would think that the the purchasing price of your money, the purchasing power of your money, uh, has pretty much maintained value. And increases in salaries has also been very flat. So people have basically been stable, supposedly. But when you consider how much uh, the cost of gas and electricity has gone up, I think that that inflation figure of 2 to 3% is, is very misleading. Because if you, particularly if you think about uh, retirees or people with young families, the portion of their income that they would spend on electricity and gas would be very, very high. Perhaps across the whole economy it's not that high, but I think at a personal level it would be pretty high. So I think that the effect of the increase in those prices would be having a much bigger impact than what you might otherwise believe. So it's become a real political issue. Uh, the uh, politicians and others are blaming it on the closure of the large coal-fired power stations. I mean, this whole issue is really charged politically because, first of all, it's something that hits the hip pockets of virtually everybody in terms of their personal bills, and it's very much related to the whole climate change um, the whole climate change world as well. So what's been happening uh, recently is that they're closing some of the large coal-fired power stations, uh, in particular the Hazelwood station in Victoria, and also, there's a lot of energy and gas being generated in Queensland, but a lot of it is being exported overseas, exported overseas to Asia. So what that's done is it's had the supply, meant that the supply is a bit lower in Australia, what's available to Australians. And that means that prices have gone up for us. Uh, I did see a interview with the head of Origin Energy last night, who said that the forward prices, though, there is going to be some some sunshine on the horizon because he said that the forward prices for electricity and gas are likely to fall. Now, I can't understand how one can predict the forward estimate. It's hard to work out what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone over the next three years. But he seemed to suggest that there's going to be more supply and all the electricity and gas is going to there's going to be plenty more supply and it'll come on board and we'll see what happens there um so yes the other really interesting thing that i saw in the paper this morning as well is on in the age is an unsent text message counted as a will the court rules so there was a family debate there was a fellow who was married for a few years was he married or maybe just been no i don't think he was married he was just in a relationship with another lady and apparently it had been quite a rocky sort of relationship. And before he passed away, he started writing a text message on his phone that said that he didn't want to leave anything to her. He wanted to leave to other members of his family. And, you know, that was all he wrote. Now, the there was a court case about it. Obviously, the uh, the his partner wanted that to be set aside. She wasn't. She said it wasn't a real will or anything, but that believe it or not, the judge actually decided that an unsent text message could basically be a quasi will because it reflected what he was thinking before he passed away. I find that absolutely astounding. 
an unsent text message, I think it opens up a whole lot of danger. I mean, why couldn't someone get into someone's phone before they passed away and actually start writing a text message? He didn't even send it. But anyway, that was what happened. And that really, um, at one point, we might get a solicitor on to discuss that because I think it's a really, really interesting point. All right, we're going to take a short break now and put some music on and then we will get Chris Cuff on the line. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. We are continuing our show today uh, speaking to people about their careers and their businesses. And today we have as our special guest Chris Cuff. Chris is the uh, is the chairman of Australian Philanthropic Services, uh, which helps people manage and plan their living so that they can support the community more effectively. Uh, Chris has had a really interesting career in financial services, which is one that you don't necessarily always uh, think about philanthropy when you're talking about banks and big investment companies. So it's going to be an interesting discussion. Chris, do I have you on the line? You do, Ruben. Thanks very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Now, Chris, I understand that now you spend most, most of your time in the world of philanthropy and giving back. But can you tell me where things started for you, uh, before you before you went down that path? Yeah, sure. Well, well, actually, I'm still I've got a foot strongly in both camps too. Oh, okay. I'm still very much involved in the investment sector and and the philanthropy sector, which um, my 13 year old sometimes he finds it a challenge to tell tell people what Dad does. But I say <laughs> I help people make money and I help people give it away. Right. But that's actually a good, my, yeah. I might use that as well because it's not easy to describe what a financial planner does. <laughs> That's right. Anyway. Look, my, my journey into the philanthropic world really um, uh, was, was after a, a long career in the, in the finance industry. Um, I've been, I was involved in uh, helping co- build Colonial First State from the ground up and, yep. and the Challenger Group and the like. But uh, after a, uh, a long while, I, I thought, gee, I wanted to try something different and I, I uh, decided to... Um, move into the um, to, to an organisation called Social Ventures Australia, which yeah. is a not-for-profit group which yeah. helps charities. And there, then from there, I decided to sort of branch out and do other things where I thought it could accelerate philanthropy uh, in Australia. Okay, so let's start at your with your time at Colonial First State because I started myself in the financial advice industry in about 1999. And I think the very first managed fund that I ever saw was the Colonial First State Imputation Fund. So, so going back that sort of 17 years, was that really the beginning or the genesis of the managed fund industry? Yeah, probably even a bit earlier, the managed funds industry in the modern sense that we know it sort of started with Macquarie Bank, I think, with what was then the Hill Samuel Cash Management Trust. And that was in the early 80s. And then I think, um, you know, there were a few entrants in the 80s, groups like BT, which are still there, and Rothschilds and the like. But yeah. many organisations that we know of today really started to get going in the, the 90s. And, and in fact, Colonial First State was created in what was then just First State Fund Managers. That was created in the late 80s and, uh, and then uh, through a series of... Um, good management and acquisitions, and you know it grew fairly rapidly uh, in the back end of the nineties. Yeah, so that the, the, that very first fund, that Colonial First Aid Imputation Fund, that pretty much invested in in Australian shares, wasn't it? How are people That's investing? Correct. 
before that, that, that managed fund industry came along? Oh, look, before the, um, the 80s, really anybody who had money to invest, well, really, that was probably the domain of the very wealthy only. But yeah. many of them outside of um, investing directly with a stockbroker on the stock market, um, many people probably would have had things like insurance bonds with insurance companies, that yeah. type of thing. But yeah. look, the, the early um, investors, I think, were more into direct shares themselves. And the, yeah. the managed funds industry was a real breakthrough to allow, you know, fairly uh, people of more, much more modest means to, to have uh, uh, proper portfolios. Yeah. And also that was accelerated, as we know, by the compulsory superannuation. Right. It just made it a lot more accessible. It's interesting because we had a discussion about fintech uh, a couple of weeks ago. And... You know, talking about all the different, you know, the, the fact that fintech has made financial services more accessible. And the point that I made was that there's a whole lot of fintech, you know, fintech's been around for ages. I mean, an automatic teller machine is fintech. Uh, internet yep. banking is fintech. But I guess even the managed fund industry is, was, a, was a fintech thing as well. In some well, in ways. the sense, well, certainly was in the sense that through the use of technology, so once... You know, when I went to uh, university, we didn't even have computers. But yeah. once once computers were around, we could obviously do a whole lot more. And the concept of being able to pool investments and still record the individual people behind who own that pool in a right. very efficient and online manner, that's really what changed things. You could never have had the managed funds industry without uh, the computers that we now know of. So, yeah, yeah that's why it really couldn't have got going in any great shape and, until the uh, the 80s. Yeah. And what would you put down overall the the particular success of, of Colonial First State? Uh, what what was the big driver of it? Was it one of the first to the market? Was the was the marketing of it you know, exceptionally good? What was the or was the performance of the funds, you know, well well above the benchmark? Look, I think it's a, a lot of factors. The, what if I had to pin uh, a couple couple of things to the success of Colonial First State? Certainly, it was that in when we started, we were very fortunate to have on our staff a, a fantastic stock picker by the name of Greg Perry, and yep. uh, so he he was a sort of guru, well, unknown person at that stage in investing in Australian equities and he did extremely well for that particular fund you said the imputation fund yeah so that became a, a really uh, well sought after fund and on the back of that sort of um, uh, momentum because uh, um, investors were getting to know it and financial planners on the back of that we built um, expertise in other asset classes and then ultimately being um, purchased by the Colonial Group helped, yeah. and then in turn the Commonwealth Bank Group because it meant we had more distribution capability that allowed us to have more products and, and to hire better and better people. Yeah. So, look, I think that, that expertise in Australian equities was very important. The second part of the journey was certainly uh, we, we were much better in my biased view in the how we utilise technology compared to most other companies because we were the newest company, so the technology we used was more contemporary, whereas other companies had to adapt old systems. Right. And uh, so, know, certainly from there, we built some pretty innovative products, like particularly the, the Colonial First Choice product yeah. range. So from your perspective, then, the, the ownership of the business changed hands 
a few times, and as yeah. as I guess the you know, the the manager of it, did, the, did was that a difficult transition as it went from as I imagine First State was a smallest business and then to become part of a big bank was that a, a difficult transition for you? Did you have to change your style a lot as you as you moved on? Look, I, I don't know if I'd use the word difficult, but it was certainly um, yeah caused a difference. To the journey yeah. when we colonial or first state fund managers with the original firm that was created by the State Bank of New South Wales. Yeah. As uh, your listeners with a bit of memory and, and grey hair would know, the State Bank of New South Wales was sold to Colonial. So at that right. stage, we had to adapt to different ownership, but it didn't have a big impact on us, I must say, because we were really the uh, the fly on the backside of an elephant. We were tiny within a, quite a large group, and I think sort of no, hardly anybody noticed us. And but it, it, some years later, because of the explosive growth in um, uh, first state fund managers, which was then renamed Colonial First State, some years after the acquisition of the state bank by Colonial, we had this sort of explosive growth and uh, exacerbated by um, three acquisitions during that period in the late nineties. It was, uh, we absorbed the operations of uh, legal and general and prudential yeah. and, yeah. and indeed colonial zone funds. So, we, so, so sort of virtually of overnight we came to be a sort of $20 billion firm and suddenly wow. everybody noticed us. And once you notice within a big firm, that's when it became more difficult because yeah. uh, a lot of group, a lot of the internal structure wanted to uh, sort of get involved and tell us how we should do things. Yeah. And yeah, you can't but help feel that well, we've done it all right without you, so why don't you leave us alone? So you were still there when Colonial First State was bought out by the Commonwealth Bank? Correct. So that was yep. the second big acquisition, the yep. Commonwealth Bank. And by that stage, I, that was uh, announced in 2000. Uh, I ultimately left in 2003. And, and yep. look, I've always thought of myself as better at, at uh, businesses that are more in their early that are days. growing, yeah, as opposed to ones. wasn't suited to a, yeah. a, a much larger... But, but yeah, what's the firm interesting, adapted well and continued to grow. Yeah, what's interesting, because we've talked a bit on the show about the difficulty that the banks have gotten into in, in financial services, uh, the difficulty they've had some financial planning scandals, uh, they've had, particularly in the insurance, uh, in, the, in their insurance businesses, they've had difficulty, and there's, there's question marks whether or not they should be in that game at all. What's your, what's your view on that? Look, I think there was a bit of a rush by all the banks in the um, in the late 90s, early 2000s to, to be in the sort of wider businesses of uh, financial services. So they talked about it in terms of the bank assurance model, which was banking, insurance, investment, all under yeah. one umbrella. Yeah. So that was the theory. But I must say, I've, I've never been a great proponent of that. And I, I think what's happening now, the banks uh, are slowly unwinding those activities because... Yeah. There's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, in the areas of um, financial planning and insurance, sometimes the outcomes are not completely in your control and and are at the whim of um, world markets or Mm. particular circumstances that you have not a lot of control over. And the outcome can be very variable. I mean, Mm. people know you could have... One person could go to five different financial planners and come up with five different completely different yeah, so um, plans for how to do things. And so I guess the like banks, the, yeah, the banks have been built on you keep selling. The more products you can sell to a particular client, the more luck- likely they are to be sticky. But sometimes that's at odds with the, you know, with a professional 
person being employed who's really looking after the meant to be looking after the very best interests of the clients, not selling another product. Look, I think that's right. So I guess the point I was going to make at make the, the products they were starting to get into, be insurance and financial mm. planning, and to a degree some investment management products. The, the possibility for brand damage was pretty high when yeah. the profits itself weren't um, commensurate with doing that. And, and these days, too, the regulatory capital requirements of banks are a whole lot different. So, mm. yeah, economically, I would I would think most banks would be looking at their balance sheet saying, we're not sure why it makes sense for us to be in these things anymore because mm. the capital requirements are too high and the brand damage, if it goes wrong, is too yeah, high. Yeah, and that would be particularly in the life insurance game, isn't it? They need to hold a lot of capital to, to be able to pay the claims. Uh, well, absolutely, but but also it's about, as we know, in the insurance game, you have to have massive scale. Insurance mm. is about pooling of risk, so you need massive, massive scale, and it's it's much larger than what many of these smaller local operators could ever have had, and that's why yeah. you're seeing insurance companies sort of... Uh, be gobbled up by by but, uh, larger global insurance. By overseas, yeah, that have, that have maybe got more patience in terms of their return. I mean, one of the difficulties with all listed sectors is, is that everyone's focused on quarterly performance, and these sort of assets or businesses are really, really long term. And they're long term, and they're quite cyclical. Yeah. So okay, so you left Colonial First State in around two thousand and three. Uh, yeah. Soon after the, well, a couple of years after they were bought out by by CBA, and what was your next career move after that? Well, I, I went from um, uh, from that group to become the uh, CEO of the listed challenger group, yeah. which in those days uh, was was in a fairly precarious position. So yeah. it, its products weren't particularly great. Um, its capital structure was fairly poor, and I was sort of brought in by the uh, the Packer organisation, who had a, a very large um, interest in Challenger, t- to see if we could get it back on its feet and, and turn it into something um, good. And, and, you know, these days, the, the Challenger company is a whole lot different to what it was in those days. Yeah, yeah. So, and how many years, how many years were you there at Challenger? Well, I was only at Challenger for three years, and yeah. because they, it became very obvious to me fairly quickly that the type of individual I was, I, I really didn't uh, relish being CEO of a listed company. I mean, mm. I could have worked that out perhaps before I did it, but until you've tried something, perhaps you don't know. So, you know, it was pretty much a 24 by 7 type of role, and, yeah. and I found it, look, I just didn't think it suited my, uh, my temperament or my lifestyle. But yeah. in particular, you know, I think... Just what you said a second ago. Many listed companies they have such a focus on short-term results mm. that it's sometimes not as satisfying as being involved in, in private companies who can yeah. take a genuinely long-term view. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you were there for around three years, and you found that uh, I suppose that that CEO role of a listed company to be a bit challenging. And then from there, did you move to another corporate role or what was the no, next so move from there? Look, after I, I left the Challenger Group, I, I really had a um, uh, a moment where I, I really just thought long and hard about, look, if I could do anything, and I was fortunate that I'd had a good career in the finance industry and I was, I was financially secure, which had been very lucky that I just thought if I could do anything, what would I do? And, and look, I, I concluded what I think many people would is that I really enjoyed helping people and maybe I could do something 
getting satisfaction, more satisfaction from helping people. Yeah. And so I, I actually uh, took a, a role in the not-for-profit sector with um, the group I mentioned earlier, Social Ventures Australia, which was an organisation, a charity that was helping other charities to yeah. be more uh, efficient. So it was sort of populated by uh, people with a business background in the main uh, to, to try and really help the charitable sector. And, and, and so that's what I ended up doing yeah. for a, a few years, and which was very satisfying. And that's really what got me interested in the whole area of philanthropy. Well, it's interesting because a lot of people, I suppose, but you know, particularly in the financial services sector, you know, have done very well financially and i guess the question is is once you know you've achieved that degree of comfort what's the motivation to keep going to keep going in that exactly way? right and that was you know as i was staring at a blank sheet of paper mm. wondering what i was going to do um you know i could have i guess i could have gone on to do other ceo roles of bigger uh companies um potentially i, I possibly would have earn more money, I would have mm. probably had more power and more prestige. But look, I, you know, I'm, I'm 57 these days. I think once you get to about 50, you do start to realise you are mortal. Yeah. And, uh, and life's a journey and, um, you know, enjoying that journey along the way and making most of it yeah. uh, is really what was of most interest to me. So that's why, again, I thought, yeah. well, look, I've done enough of that. Let's see if I can make an impact somewhere else where... where uh, which would have, have a lot more effect on the wider community. Yeah, but it's interesting, though. I guess you can look at it from the perspective that, you know, corporates and the health, you know, if you can build a company as well, you're probably employing a lot of people and helping their lives as well. So isn't there, being part of a successful business as well, you could look at that that you're helping people in that respect as well, couldn't you? Oh, absolutely. And I didn't mean it to come across no. as a criticism of commerce. In fact, you know, I would say I'm a commercial animal. I, I still do a lot uh, in the investment area, as I said at the beginning, and I, I work with large companies. I do a lot of things. So I thoroughly enjoy commerce, but it was time for me, to, I felt, to broaden my personal experiences and move on to something uh, different. And But it's I've always enjoyed doing things where I think I can make it an impact. And, you yeah. know, Colonial First State, I was... Yeah, right from the beginning, and it was very satisfying seeing that grow from nothing to employing thousands of people and affecting positively, I think, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of investors across Australia. Yeah. So that was yeah. fantastic, and, and to be able to be part of that journey and to grow with it was very satisfying. And, yeah. and really, the type of stuff I've done in the philanthropic sector has probably broken a bit of new ground again and given me this satisfaction of another journey, but just in a completely different field. Okay, we're talking to Chris Cuff, uh, the Chairman of Australian Philanthropic Services and a number of other roles as well, which we're going to talk about. But we've just spoke about how Chris uh, blends the uh, the world of commerce and philanthropy. And I think one of the most interesting things you've done, Chris, is the, uh, the development of the Third Link Growth Fund. Uh, can you explain to our listeners a little bit about that? Sure. Well, it was about nine years ago when I was working in Social Ventures Australia that I thought, gee, I wonder if I could start an investment fund myself uh, and I'll just donate the fees from that investment fund to charity. Yeah. Uh, and that was the sort of um, model in my mind. I thought, look, I'm, I'm pretty well known in the investment industry. I can probably put something together there and, uh, and, and uh, it would be sort of an interesting thing to see if 
the charitable sector could win from that and sort of wind that forward nine years now. And so, uh, just, just, um, just, to be, just to be clear, was that for charities to invest in that particular fund? No, or? no, it was for anybody. So I see. the type of investors that uh, are in it are things like self-managed super funds and just individuals. And Right, right. So they, uh, they're people uh, who would have invested in other funds anyway and they choose to invest in, in this particular fund. Yeah, we were just like, if you, if you like, Third Link Growth Fund was like any other managed investment uh, fund. Right. It invested in Australian shares. Yeah. And the, um, um, so the investors could be anybody. The minimum was $20 million and the fees... Uh, the minimum was $20 charity. million? Dollars. Sorry, the, the, the fee... Sorry, I said the wrong thing. <laughs> the, um, the minimum investment was uh, $20,000. Oh, okay. That's more like it. Uh, so it was open to the general public. Right. And if I look forward nine years now, that's um, according to outside sources, that's been one of the best Australian equity funds uh, in existence. Wow. And it's... Um, but it, it has generated more than $6.5 million of fees that have been gone paid to charity. Each, is that in total or each year? No, that's in total. So wow. to break it down to, obviously, it's been a gradual build-up. So where we are these days, every month, um, through through the fees from that fund, I'm able to donate around about $150,000 every month to charity wow. and, and there's a bunch of kids charities we support which are on the website and it's, so it's, it's worked out well investors have had a good ride charities are really enjoying it and i've i've had a lot out of it um i do a pro bono but it's been enormously satisfying wow. to be able to um, see that take place and in fact so investors, been a couple of other people done a similar thing since then right so investors pay the same fee as what they would to another managed fund it just happens Correct. to know that you're that this fee, you know, is generates uh, money for charitable causes. Yeah, just I suppose after you've covered some basic expenses. That's right. So the fee is paid to my management company. My management company pays any costs, of which there's hardly any. Yeah. Uh, and and the rest of the fee I donate to charity. Yeah. But the the interesting thing with with that is that I was able to convince a whole lot of um, organisations to help me run that fund and they would do it pro bono. So oh, right. it's an Australian equity fund. I said I don't actually invest the money myself in direct shares. What I right. do is I put money with other fund managers and they in turn um, manage uh, the funds through their normal funds, but they they do it for free. So oh, they do wow. it for free. Then I've got groups like okay. um, Minter Ellison do all the legals for free right. and Deloitte's do the uh, uh, audit for free and yeah. RBC do all the custodians. So everybody, there's lots of players doing things for free, wow. which ultimately means the it cost all goes is to the charity. And, the money goes and, and how big is the fund now? Well, the fund uh, is $150 million and I've just closed the fund to new investors. Wow. Uh, simply because I always intended to get to about $150 million yeah. and close it. Yeah. Um, is that because above were, that you thought that might affect performance if you got too big? Not so much affect performance, but because I was relying on... Uh, that what I uh, regard as a very good group of fund managers to keep managing money for free. I, d I didn't want the ask of them to you be too great. So I wanted it to be yep. enough, but not too too much. And 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 also, you know, if you, if you like, it's it's a satisfying goal. This thing now, as I said, gives away around hundred more than hundred and fifty thousand a month. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of it's it's working. Uh, for the charities, it's yeah. it's uh, it's spinning off very good performance for investors. It yeah. sort of feels like about the right yeah. mark now. 
Yeah, you don't want it to sort of keep growing and growing. It's not... You never know these things can get out of hand, I guess. Yeah, well, and there was no sort of real reason to do it. Everybody's been a, a winner, so that's been a good, a good yeah. recipe. Okay, so that's, um, that's great. So I want to talk a bit about Australian Philanthropic Services, which I understand helps helps people make uh, make their support the community more effectively. But just as a broader question, I mean, how how generous in general is the Australian public in terms of donations? Do you have any any feel for that? Are we a charitable community relative to the rest of the world? Well, for things I have read and seen, you'd say the average Australian, and let's just call it Joe's Six-Pack. Yeah. So Joe's Six-Pack is, is uh, generous. There's no... All the all the statistics show us that, and they're generous in a number of ways. Not only um, donating to charities, but also uh, Australians do a lot of volunteer work, which right. is a very important part of the charitable sector. So, ordinary Australians, you'd say, are very generous. The, the numbers tend to say that uh, the wealthy Australians are less generous than their counterparts yeah. in, in the US and Europe. But that was one of the motivations for me to set up Australian Philanthropic Services because. I didn't think that was necessarily true at face value. Like, mm. There must have been other things at play there. And one of the things I thought that was pretty important that no one, no one organisation seemed to be pr- uh, promoting philanthropy uh, amongst the wealthy mm. and the advantages of the various structures that now exist in order to conduct philanthropy so- efficiently. And, and those type of things exist in, in America and yeah. Europe. So I, I thought there was a lack of marketing and some roadblocks. And it is uh, interesting, because uh, I'm involved in fundraising for my for my children's school, and in the US, you know, you had those uh, the very wealthy uh, making those pledges to give away 98% of their money, and it's sort of, in the US, like everything, they're pretty sort of loud and, and brash about it, and that perhaps encourages other people to give. Uh, whereas here, perhaps we're we're a bit more conservative in terms of our discussions about money. Yeah, look, I think that is right. A lot of Australia's um, high net worth individuals, a lot of it's what you'd call fairly new wealth. Obviously, that makes sense because Australia is a fairly new yeah. country in a global sense. But I think there's other factors at work. For example, in America, if if you uh, die. Sorry, not if you will die. When you die, if your assets are greater than X, and I think X is about yeah. just over five million US dollars, you're subject to death. Yeah, duty. So you do. yep. give yep. money away. That yeah. obviously means it goes to charity instead of the government. If you're a very wealthy person, right. and also I think the um, America, uh, the US in particular, has had in its DNA some quite large foundations which were. Um, the roots of those were at the beginning of last century, you know, like the Fords and the Rockefellers. And yeah, yeah. People sort of grew up sort of knowing that that was part of the DNA yeah. of, of wealthy people. Yeah. yeah. Sort of put, I've often been told that, you know, if you're, in, if you're wealthy and you're invited to a party, you're expected to give. That's, that's just yeah. the, um, yeah, that's that's the calling card. But Australians are certainly a lot more shy about it. But I, yeah, look, yeah. I do think the death duties has had a, a big impact. A, a big impact as well. So, so, in terms of Australian philanthropic services, so how does it help? How does it help individuals with their giving? Okay, so so basically, in Australia, um, many people don't know, but it was about fifteen years ago that the um, uh, the government um, introduced. Um, a, a particular type of trust vehicle called a private ancillary yeah. fund. 
um, and the acronym PATH, P-A-S, yeah, yeah, Private yeah. Necessary Fund. And these funds were a very tax-effective way to get involved in philanthropy. So basically, when these things are set up, any money you put into it, you get a tax deduction for all f- fully for anything yep. you put in. Yep. And then the trust itself must give away a minimum 5% per mm-hmm. annum to charity. And basically what that has done is it's broken the link or the nexus between the timing of the tax deduction and the, the timing of the giving because mm. people often, you know, want to think about their giving a lot more or, do you know, just be more involved. And it's not always sort of knee-jerk giving. It's not the right. same as someone knocks on your door for, the, for an appeal and you give money on the spot. This is quite different. Right. Anyhow, that type of vehicle is... I, I would say it's it's revolutionised the the philanthropy sector. So what we do, our family had set one of those things up nearly a decade ago, and it was a very arduous experience. It was costly. It was time consuming. Nobody seemed to be an expert, and that just got me thinking back then. Gee, maybe uh, there's uh, there should be an organisation that specialises in in advising people about these structures and actually setting them up and administering them. Yeah, and yeah. so that's what Australian Philanthropic Services yeah. does. We currently work with about 300 oh, wow. families yep. in Australia. That's growing by the week. And not only do we set up and administer that structure, and there's a similar one called a public ancillary fund, yeah. slightly different but very useful, we also give people grant-making advice. So people who, who may set one of these things up they might say actually i don't understand a lot about the charitable sector and i'm interested in giving to this type of cause can you recommend any groups or can you come and do some due diligence on my favorite charity or can you come and help our family explore what our common interests are in, in uh, giving money away and stuff like that. So, mm. so that's essentially Australian Philanthropic Services basically works with people yeah. um, who, who want uh, to, to be much more engaged with philanthropy and, and to set up the correct yeah. structures. So just going to back to the actual mechanics of the private ancillary fund, it's a little bit like a superannuation fund in a way, isn't it? You put a, you put a lump of money in there, let's say you've... I think you've made a really big uh, profit from selling your business, and you've got a big taxable income, and you might and you put a million dollars in there, and then yeah. what you're saying is you invest that, and you've got to distribute at least fifty thousand dollars per year to charities. That's that's correct. Now, now I'm just going to ask a question about that. That might be a bit controversial, but isn't that somehow a way of wealthy people wanting to hang on to their money? <laughs> And only giving it, well, and only giving a small portion of it away. Why not just give no, the whole well, million dollars away? If well, you you could, Reuben, and, <laughs> and uh, certainly these vehicles, private ancillary fund. Not everybody um, uh, desires to have those. Yeah. But what you find in the figures, if you do the maths, and it's obviously beyond this interview, but that pot of money that you start with, obviously grows with compounding investment. Mm. So the amount you're ultimately giving away is a multiple of the original amount if you're doing everything correctly. Right. So, but, but also what we have seen, it, it enables often families set these things up to get their kids involved. Mm. So they say, look, we've got, this, we've got this philanthropic trust together, you children, um, why don't we all get involved in who we give the money to? You might get involved in the investing of the structure. Mm. But I don't really think it's a deferment or holding on to assets because once you put the money into these trusts, you can never get it back. It's a one-way no. street. You've effectively given it right. away right. Or, or, if you like, putting it yeah. put it into a holding spot while you then think uh, about 
who you give to. But many families, by the way, give much more than the minimum 5%. Right, right. Many of them give, uh, I think the average for Australian philanthropic services clients is closer to 10% per annum. Yeah, so so I guess, yeah, as you say, there's another element of the planned strategic giving once you get involved in this. You're a lot more careful about how you give the money and perhaps you by being that way you can be more strategic and have a bigger impact than if you just, as you say, you know, you've sold a business and you just sort of write out a cheque to to someone in a hurry because you want to get the tax deduction. Exactly right. I, I yep. think people become a lot more strategic about how they give and who to and that. But the point you made before, like if you if you are a, 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 an individual that has a windfall from a sale of a business, you know, that's the sort of once-off event. And many people might, you know, quite rightly say, no, we want to put that aside and let that last for years in a giving sense. Mm. <laughs> and that's no different, again, to the the Ford Foundation or the Rockefeller Foundation or indeed the Sydney Meyer Foundation. Sydney Meyer yeah. was a, a famous Melbourneite. His foundation, I think, started with the equivalent of... Uh, I've got the numbers wrong here, but, but, but it was a small amount of money in yeah. today's terms. So I think it was sort of less than a million dollars. That, that foundation is worth well over $100 million these days, yeah. giving away huge amounts. Now, Chris, we're uh, starting to run a bit low on time, but I want to really talk about... The other type of fund that's similar to that, I've actually used it myself, the, the public ancillary... Is it called a public ancillary fund? Is that right? That's correct. So, so, so can you explain a bit about that? Clear, yeah, so to be clear, there's two ancillary funds. There's a yeah. private ancillary fund, which we've been talking about, and there's a public ancillary fund. And they're exactly the same as a parallel to the super industry, which you mentioned a second ago. The private ancillary fund is very like a self-managed super fund. The public ancillary fund is very much like a public offer super fund, which most Australians are in. So in that case, the fund already exists, the trustee exists, the investing is already done for you, and all you do is you put your money in that fund, you have an account, and you're in there with um, uh, many other people, you have your own account in that fund. Like the old colonial first state fund? Like, (laughs) think of it like that. You get a full tax deduction for any amount you put in. Right. And, and then each year, <coughs> you're advised by the fund uh, that you must give away a, a set minimum amount. In yeah. this case, it's 4%, not 5%. So, mm. And then you, you really <coughs> give advice to the trustee of who to give that money to. So basically, you're putting money in this thing, you get a tax deduction. Each year, then, you are giving money away from that pool, but somebody else looks after the pool for yeah. you. So it's a fantastic way, because to set up the, the private ancillary funds, what amount would you generally recommend you would be required to deal with all the compliance and all those issues? Yeah, look, we say to people to make it worthwhile, you're looking at, at the big end of town. That's sort of a million dollars minimum right. for a private ancillary fund. But a public ancillary fund, which I believe is as is much fun um, uh, giving from, we at Australian Philanthropic Services, we have our own public ancillary fund, yeah. and the minimum to go into that is $50,000. Yeah, so that's a great way to get you in. And it sounds like you've and you've still got pretty good flexibility in terms of how you allocate the money as well. You And I know with mine, when I set it up, and I each year I just sort of said to you guys, look, I want to donate to these charities. And as long yeah. as it was a tax-deductible charity, you guys were like, no worries, we'll, we'll yeah, do absolutely. it. Yeah, absolutely. It's very flexible and... And in fact, if you're in a public ancillary fund and you don't like it, you can move to another public mm. ancillary fund generally. Not, uh, and also, if you decide one day that you, you've liked the experience of a public ancillary fund but you're ready to have your own 
private answer refund, you can actually move your money across to a private answer refund. Yeah. So it's, it's flexible in getting it's, it's moving really, around, but it's yeah. very flexible in you can you know you, the donating side is is uh, is just is as flexible as anything. As you say, it's really similar to you know to the super fund industry, isn't it? Whether you have a self-managed yeah, fund or or a managed fund, and you can roll it over between them. Right, Chris, we're yeah, coming to the end now. I've got to say, I did mean to to give you notice about this question, but I forgot to send a text to you this morning, so I'm going to put you a bit on the spot. But I want to know if you can give us. Uh, we've talked about your career. Uh, plenty of people listening to this will be at the start or the middle of their their careers, whether it's in. Yeah, whatever it's in, financial services or medical profession or whatever, what are the sort of top three tips, financial or business tips that you could you could give to our listeners? I've really well, put you on the spot. That, all, that is a big. That's a big question, Ruben. It depends on the individual. But look, I've always I've always had a strong rudder on a couple of things. Um, yeah. a- absolutely, bring integrity to whatever you do in business. Um, uh, Absolutely, work work hard. I mean, it does worry me sometimes. I, I think some people start a job today, and by you know next week they want to be the boss. You know, to learn your craft, whatever it is, really well. Become an expert at it. Yeah. Um, do it with great integrity. Work hard and treat other people well. You know, I, I found in a lot of my time during uh, colonial first aid, in particular, people said to me very flatteringly. You know, you're a person we 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 enjoyed following. You took a leadership role. You were kind to people. You made tough to business decisions at the same time. But you actually acted as a uh, a human being uh, rather than a, a sort of robot. Yeah. But you know, it's it is again working hard. There's always a bit of luck on the on the way too. But I think I encourage many people, particularly uh, younger ones. This is a little bit against the trend of today's advice, but. Work at something for a long time. Don't just sort of flip, mm. flip around too quickly because you'll never, you'll just end up a generalist. You'll never be an expert at, at any one thing. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. That is probably not that trendy now because everyone's talking about uh, that. You know, you're not going to be in your the, the kids coming out of school today. Are not going to be in. They're going to have about ten changes in their career. That's what well, everyone's talking about. Not only just the ten changes, Ruben. It worries me that so many people are saying. You want to be the next entrepreneur or yeah, uh, yeah. entrepreneur? Go and set up your business tomorrow. And we'll, yeah. I can tell you about ninety-five percent of small businesses fail. Yeah. All right, Chris. Look, thanks very much for your time today. It's a really interesting journey uh, that you've had, and I certainly we'll put in our show notes where people can find out more about what you do. I know there's another whole area we haven't touched on, which is which is the newsletter that you produce, Cufflinks. But we're going to put some uh, links in the show notes to all those different things. And thanks. Thanks again for your time. That's a pleasure, Ruben. Okay, goodbye. Welcome back to the show. Now it's time for Propeller Head of the Week. Now, at the beginning of the show, we talked about the rising cost of gas and electricity prices. So it really pays to go to a comparison site, uh, something like an iSelect, and get them to do a comparison of your, of your gas and electricity. But even if you don't do that, I highly recommend that you pay your gas and electricity by direct debit. They actually give ridiculous discounts uh, for doing so. I'm with AGL and I get a 36% discount for paying my electricity on time plus an extra 2% because I've got gas with them as well. So it's 38% discount I have on my electricity and about 16% on my gas. I highly recommend that you do that. It does sound a little ridiculous those discounts but they're there for sure. 
pay your gas and electricity by direct debit. Okay, well, that's all we have time for today on the Finance Hour. Uh, I welcome you to Google the Finance Hour or find us on iTunes or Stitcher to listen to any of the previous episodes. And I'm also going to put it out there. If you think you would be a good guest for the Finance Hour, why don't you drop me an email at advice at adaptwealth.com.au and you never know, you may be a radio star as well. That's all for today and we will see you next week.